I went digging for some of the for, for some more lyrical meanings, and I wound up on a website called KaraokeLyrics.net, and I thought, what a disappointing end of the night karaoke song. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, 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 everyone, and welcome to another week of 1001 Album Complaints. This is the podcast where lifelong friends, musicians, and general complainers get together to talk about albums from Robert Dimery's list of 1001 albums you must hear before you die, give some deep dives on individual tracks, and at the end, vote on whether or not this really does belong on the list of albums you must hear before you die. This week, we are covering... The Gang of Four album, Entertainment, <laughs> with an exclamation point. That's good. <laughs> Solid delivery. Nice, Rich. Very shortly, we will dive into just a, a taste of what we've been listening to. We're going to do some quick impressions of the album and then do some deep dives. But before then, I'm going to throw it over to Rob, who's going to reach his hand into that mailbag and pull out some listener mail. So take it away, Rob. Thanks so much, Tom. Really exciting bit of mail here. In reference to our Bell and Sebastian episode, Steph, okay. who is a co-founder of Jeepster Records, writes to us from the UK. It says, just listen to your episode on If You're Feeling Sinister. I really enjoyed it. I'm a co-founder of Jeepster Records. Recall that was the record company that released those first couple Bell and Sebastian records. And he says, being a bit of an old-fashioned pedant, had to write in with a correction for you. The band's first album, Tiger Milk, didn't chart at all in 1996. This is because it was only produced in about a thousand vinyl copies by a small label called Electric Honey, and most of which were just given away and not sold. The chart position that you quoted uh, as number 13 happened in 1999, when Jeepster gave the album its first proper release. Wow. Right, yeah. So, very interesting. Very, very DIY. Uh, He goes on to write, As you piece together, it was all word of mouth with the first two albums, and yes, there were no interviews, no singles, no photos, and only something like five gigs throughout 1996. (laughs) Thanks, and looking forward to more episodes. All right, that is awesome. We have have reached the source. I am very happy about that. (laughs) Yeah. In all honesty, I was expecting a litany of corrections when, <laughs> when you said I was half expecting a cease and desist letter coming for Rob there on that, so that's, uh, I'm happy. Now nah, we're still waiting for that cease and desist letter right. from Arby's for Rob and I's Arby's album, which is dropping soon, people. <laughs> uh, wow. All right. All right. Well, that's that's fantastic. Let's jump back into the topic of the week, which is the Gang of Four album, Entertainment, released September 25th, 1979, the day that my older sister was born. All right. right. We're going to just run a quick snippet of the opening track on this album, the song Ether. So let's take it away with Ether from Gang of Four. the end of the rainbow. 
makes your new dreams daily Father's contradictions And breaks your new dreams daily Alright, so now everybody, if you have been listening along with us this week, you already are familiar with the song. If not, don't worry, we are going to go through enough songs in this album for you to really get a sense of the flavor of it. But first things first, let's throw it around the room and get some general impressions of this album out. Adam, I'm going to throw it to you first. How was your week? Hey, it was an interesting week. This is Adam, and my quick review is, This album gave me migraines! Is, Which, is, if you get to the second track, that'll make sense. But you might not. I don't know. We'll a, see. That was a pretty passable vocal take for Gang of Four. <laughs> is that a British thing? Do they say migraine and not migraine? I, news to me if it was. Yeah, definitely never heard that before. All right. Rob, take it away. Well, some bad news first. I researched late period Maoist China. I have a lot of thoughts for you guys. I think I got the prompt wrong. No, just kidding. Um, Here's my tweet-length review of Gang of Four. Are you the type of person that listens to early Talking Heads and thinks, I wish the fun I'm having right now was gone (laughs) and was instead replaced with self-righteous 1980s British political anger? (laughs) Well done. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. Uh, My my tweet-length review, this is Tom, everybody. It's a little less snarky than the previous two. Basically, I really wanted to hate this album when I was listening to it. And for almost all of my listens, I did hate this album. But I kind of came around after a little bit. And I I never came to enjoy it. But I definitely don't hate it as much as I did the first time I listened to it. That just might be repetition beating it into my head. But I can't say I had any of the melodies stuck in my head or anything like that. But um, it, it grew All the on emoting. Me, yeah, it grew on me more than I thought it was going to. So let's jump a little bit into the background of this band, Gang of Four. They are a British band, in case you can't tell, uh, formed in Leeds in 1976. Uh, they are, as one might guess, a four-piece. Uh, there's a singer, John King. Guitarist Andy Gill, bassist Dave Allen, and drummer Hugo Burnham. Who played the squeeze box? That's what I needed. <laughs> I was for, for, yeah, my first complaint is you wouldn't know that by listening to them. Why the hell does this band need four people? Well, that's what happens when you have the singer needs to be completely free to just really express himself. You can't right, be hemmed right. in by having to play an instrument, Rob. Come on. <laughs> Adam, the uh, melodica that you're referring to is actually played by John King, the singer. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. All right. I don't know if wow is the right expression for that. It was not impressive melodica, <laughs> but uh, it was there. Certainly there. They are a post-punk band seen as a leader of the post-punk movement. Now, what is post-punk? I'm just going to pull directly from the Wikipedia definition of post-punk here to show Give you it how, to me. how into this uh, subgenre I am. is a broad genre on. of rock music that emerged in the late 1970s as musicians departed from the raw simplicity and traditionalism of punk rock, instead adopting a variety of avant-garde sensibilities and non-rock influences. Inspired by punk's energy and DIY ethic, but determined to break from rock cliches, artists experimented with styles like funk, 
funk, electronic music, jazz, and dance music. The production techniques of dub and disco and ideas from art and politics, including critical theory, modernist art, cinema, and literature. If that doesn't just sound painfully all pretentious th- to you, I don't know. How <laughs> all to things that I don't that. like. Yes. No, I'm joking. <laughs> So this album, Entertainment, is their debut album. Like I said, came out in 1979. And guys, I don't, I can kind of guess where your reviews are going to go, but people fucking love this album. This album is lauded as a seminal album in both the sort of post-punk and punk movements and just rock and guitar music in general. So... Uh- in- okay, hold on. Stop right there, Tom. How dare you? <laughs> yes, I know. This is not guitar music. That's really unfair. <laughs> this was ranked by Rolling Stone in 2020 as the 273rd best album of all time. Absurd. I know. We're get- we're delving into more absurdity on the next one. Pitchfork mm. called this oh, album our, the our friends eighth Pitchfork. best album of the 1970s. That's Which, the dumbest thing I've ever heard. It's the <laughs> dumbest thing I've bad. ever heard. Tapestry came out in the 70s. Right? Well, I was gonna, that, Come that, on. That entire everything decade. Came out everything in the 70s. came out in the 70s. Uh, again, I don't hate this album, but come no, on. No, no. The eighth best album of the 70s? No, that's <sighs> certainly overstating the case. Yeah. None other than Kurt Cobain has said that this is in his top 50 albums of all time. Okay, so that I get, though. That I that makes sense I, to me. Yeah, right. I heard... I, I could kind of hear bits of this in Queens of the Stone Age. That kind of like, you know, uh, almost disco punk yeah. thing, but 30 years in the future. You know, that's that's... I kind of got vibes there. So I can see influences starting, well, even further out. So... Yeah, I'll just say I came in pretty hot because I think there's a lot to make fun of on this record. But similar to Tom's take, I kind of like it, actually. (laughs) I I think there's plenty to laugh about. And I think calling it the eighth best record of the 1970s is is insane. But Pitchfork is garbage. Let's just agree. Pitchfork is garbage. (laughs) But I, I I get why it's a progenitor of a lot of other cool things. I get why it was probably a very bold musical statement at the time. And I do appreciate that. We can talk about some of the reasons for that. I like, by the way, that post-punk starts within two years of the genre called punk. I mean, but that's part of why I want to give these guys credit is that if they were pushing back against something that was still so new and hip, there is something inherently cool about that, that I appreciate. But isn't that the most punk thing ever is to take the genre that you invented and like rip it down within two years before it becomes cool. Well, okay, here is another here's another way to think about this though, because I, when listening to these guys, was like, Oh, they must have been really at the forefront of this. They must have formed and then influenced bands like Devo, bands like Talking Heads. No, Talking Heads seventy seven came out before this yeah. by two years. <laughs> Devo's right. first album came out before this. Like the clash were recording right at this same time, basically. Right. It's yeah. not Yeah. That's yeah. I did. I like how Talking Heads made it so convenient. You didn't even have to check when that first album came out because I just put it right in the title. Yeah, just call it yeah. seventy-seven. It's easy. Yeah, I know we were here first, bro. Yeah, and <laughs> oh, you but, like melodic bass? Oh, we got melodic bass. 
Yeah. The, I actually. Yeah, so here's the thing. I, I do actually like the bass on this album. I think the bass on this album is, and I'll get it out of the way because I know we haven't had this this conversation in a while, but it's very clearly super picky bass, <laughs> but it fits very well for this particular presentation of music. Yeah. And none other than Flea of Big Lebowski and Back to the Future 2 fame has stated <laughs> that this album made him want to become a bass player. <laughs> Which I I get yeah. that. I, I kind of get that. Again, if Talking Heads didn't already exist with really interesting bass-driven songs a little bit before this, I would have given it a little more credit. But yeah, the bass is definitely cool here. And I get how bass players, especially coming out of the punk era, you know, this this is this got some interesting stuff on the bass. It makes it seem like the bass is the lead instrument, especially since the guitar is taking such an anti-solo sort of approach to life. We're gonna we'll talk a little bit more about how the guitar is lauded on this later. One thing I did want to say, and this kind of loops back to what we we're talking about with how I expected this to be like the seed that grew bands like Talking Heads and Devo. We've talked about this before in many different episodes. What was the number one song when this album was released? Seventy nine, right? Take a guess. Disco something? It's My Sharona by The Knack. Oh. Which doesn't sound all that different from this. Like, it's not like they are night and day. And I'm like, oh, man, you were putting out something that was just a, like, a seismic shift away from what was popular at the time. They were kind of doing a version of what was popular at the time, but, like, angrier and dirtier and way less melodic. Yeah, because that song's kind of chunky rhythmically. Yeah. Yeah, now, it does have that jerky. really epic guitar solo, we should say. So, yeah. Yes. But also, the bass is very driving in that song and very simple. And the bass in this song is, in these songs are very driving and not complex, but well constructed. I just really have a problem with the guitar and I have a problem with the way that the vocals are delivered. The lyrics, self important, sure, hits and misses. Strikes and gutters, as they say. But I can't get over the guy's voice. His voice is just really annoying. Yeah, this is definitely one of those records, for me, it was the first time through this this band, this record at all this week, my first listen, and you immediately go, oh, I see how this created a bunch of other music later that I don't like also. <laughs> yeah. You know who probably loved these guys? Drive Like Drive Jay. Like Jay who, right. yeah, yes! yes! Totally, yeah. <laughs> I Love thought of that. these guys. Absolutely. Dissonance? Yeah. Let's run with dissonance. Yeah. Like, is there a way we can make the vocals sound worse? All right. Yeah, let's, <laughs> let's do that. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I drive like Jay. But it's it's got a little more art rock than they had, I have to say, oh, which is part yeah, of what yeah, yeah. endears me to it. I often deride bands for being overly self-serious. These guys are definitely overly self-serious. It doesn't... I don't hate it as much as I thought I was going to. And again, maybe that's just digging into some of the lyrics and the meanings behind them and stuff like that. There are some like pop themes though, not like lyrically, but musically, like, you know, they might go to the four, go to the five where you expect it or the bridge kind of does like a pop ish thing. So, so those are actually the moments where my ears perked up in this album that I enjoyed the fact that it was this loud, punk thing but then they had the sensibility to throw in kind of a fun key change you know or a a fun chord change rather 
So I don't know if you guys had the same experience I did listening to this album. It almost felt like chronologically going through the album, the songs got more soundscapey and melodically pleasant as they went on chronologically through the albums. Like some of the songs at the end sounded a little bit more like kind of, you know, accessible songs, whereas the, some mm. of the songs at the beginning are very inaccessible. And I, we talk about creating a soundscape, right? And it's, harder to do that with only three instruments certainly not impossible you know like the Jimi hendrix experience cream bands like that (laughs) they all make soundscapes with three people but these guys really didn't do that but there were glimpses of it at certain parts of the album just flashes of like i think what could have been a much more accessible album yeah this this band is really about rhythmic interchange and rhythmic strangeness and i read this interview with the guitar player, I guess, that happened decades after this came out. I believe he's passed away now. Maybe this was in the early 2000s. But the way he was describing it helped shed a little light on it, that they were very much trying to deconstruct, speaking of self-serious, they were very much trying to deconstruct pop music, stay away from things like a backbeat, stay away from things like chord changes or strumming guitar, you know, and that's why you get all this, like, stabby, psycho-esque guitar work so i i hear a lot of what they're doing but yeah that said they're still kind of moored in in making singles i think there's some 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 catchiness here but they don't stay on it for too long yeah and what makes something catchy is repetition and trust me they use repetition (laughs) on this album quite a (laughs) lot amount but not in the way that like sticks in your head in a in a pleasant way before we start Diving in and talking about some of the specific songs, I just want to point out, again, giving credence to the self-seriousness, in a 2014 monogram that was done for like a reissue of this album, uh, there was a, a professor, James, uh, Kevin J.H. Detmar, who likened this album to James Joyce's Ulysses. No, oh, Jesus. <laughs> Which, again, come on, guys. <laughs> like... <laughs> Like, how seriously do you have to take your music? Can't there just be fun music? Can't, like, music just be pleasant and fun sometimes? Well, actually, I know this isn't a literary podcast, but as a voracious reader, I'm going to come out and say I have never read Ulysses, and I don't plan on it, because I I think that it's probably a pretentious piece of bullshit. So maybe he's right. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Well well done. Well done. Ah, yes. All right, so... Let's go ahead and jump in. We're going to start talking about some specific songs in this album. We're going to dive back into the opening track, Ether, to talk a little bit about uh, some of the specifics of what we like and what we don't. So here's a little bit more of Ether. So he let it slip that he can actually sing. There's a moment at around 120 where he's hitting, uh, it's the same note as I think the chords are changing, but he says, uh, 
something about being in a white room and he actually holds the notes and it sounds decent. And that was I, I the first time through I listened to this and the first the start of the song I was like oh god here we go this whole album's going to be these choppy shouting vocals which for the most part it was but that one little that one little section I I, I grabbed onto that and held on for dear life hoping that I would hear more of it which unfortunately I didn't um, also I think that they really played up the dissonance in this song there's a moment at around three fifteen where it was so dissonant, it actually swung back around and became cool. I think, Tom, you had mentioned that at one point. It might have been like repeating lyrics or something in a prior podcast, but you get to the point where it's just like you're you're climbing the terrible scale, and then you get to the top, and if you do it just <laughs> right, it comes back around to where it's cool right. or like not annoying. And I feel like right around that moment, it was so dissonant that it came back around, and I was like, wow, I appreciate how obnoxious this is. Well, it's like you really have to commit to get to right. <laughs> like we're doing this yeah. i always i always think humor yeah. works that way too it reminds what you said reminded me of sideshow bob with the rakes where the simpsons will commit <laughs> to a joke for so long where it kind of gets unfunny for a little while and then it comes back right around. right yes yes so yeah. my my notes on this are ah. i kind of like the drumming in this song it's it, you know this sets a tone for the record for sure this gave you a good preview of what you're mostly going to be getting they do the Rage Against the Machine thing that we've mentioned a couple times, which is they attempt to just throw out anthemic lines and then repeat them endlessly. They're not nearly as good at it as Rage Against the Machine are. So white noise in a white room is not its not the clever line you seem to think it is, right. Gang of Four. <laughs> well, I have some context on these lyrics, if you would like them. I actually recently read a book called Say Nothing About the Troubles, which was a really great book. Fantastic. Uh, true stories about like basically what was happening in Northern Ireland. This is about IRA prisoners that were locked in Long Kesh. Long Kesh was a prison in Northern Ireland that IRA people that were arrested were sent to Long Kesh. And they were trying to say we should be treated as enemy combatants, not criminals. But they were basically being treated as criminals. And there was a guy named Bobby Sands who famously went on a hunger strike and like starved himself to death to try to get that status changed. Um, they actually, I think they actually talk about like special status criminals. Uh, it's not a lyric in there, but they talk about being locked up in long cash. And that white new noise in a white room is a reference to that they it was found out and released it over like around the time that they were writing these songs that the British government was torturing these prisoners. And one of the things that they were doing is they were putting them in like sensory deprivation environments where they would put them in either all white rooms with and just blast white noise like as loud as they could for days on end to drive them crazy. Jesus. Or they would put them in like hoods where they couldn't see anything and blast white noise to drive them crazy. And so in an interview, John King basically said... The report on what was being done in our name was shameful, reported back to us on TV alongside some other world atrocity while we were enjoying ourselves, unwinding at the end of the day, getting ready for fun and games. So the notion for this was two voices telling scripted parallel stories. One voice, the one who's living his fine life, says locked in heaven's lifestyle, while the other at the same time says locked in long cash, the prison for IRA and UDF members in Northern Ireland. You get the picture. This this one does this, the other does that. The run-out chant, there may be oil in rock all, 
was based on our paranoid notion that the reason the British annexed in 1955 an ugly tiny rock in the deep Atlantic was less about stopping a Russian spy on NATO missile tests than the fact that there might be oil about to pillage. And it, it all came to pass. In 2007, the Brits announced a claim, a, a vast claim to uh, vast swaths of the Atlantic for 350 miles around the rock. It's the first example of eco-colonialism. So that's direct from the source about what they're talking about. But again, it's not fun music. It's not like accessible music. (laughs) That is the opposite of fun. But living in Leeds at the time, you would have gotten the long cash references and stuff like that. You probably Mm -hmm. would have gotten the white noise in a white room reference. It's kind of lost on us because those are so far removed from us in time and geography that they don't necessarily speak to us, but that's kind of what they were going for this. And I can, I can kind of dig that the juxtaposition of like terrible shit is happening in my name. My government is doing this ostensibly to keep me safe. And the whole time I'm just thinking about beers and bikinis and having fun on the weekends. Yeah. But self seriousness, sure. I went digging for some of the for, for some more lyrical meanings, and I wound up on a website called KaraokeLyrics.net, and I thought, what a disappointing end of the night karaoke song. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Sweet Caroline, <laughs> don't stop believing, or this one locked in long cash <laughs> room. I assume this is going to be a theme that they are very overtly political and very planned you know that a lot of thought went into a lot of what's going on here and that idea started to formulate slowly over the week for me and that is part of what made me appreciate them a little more are certainly they're overly self-serious but in general i give extra credit for people who put effort into things and it certainly seems like this this implies a lot of effort lyrically and and rhythmically and otherwise sure I would say that they're a little too in love with their lyrics and at times uh, will repeat a line that they think is clever as hell and you're like, it's really not that clever. Yeah. But uh, I can also guarantee you that I did not dig as deep into all of the lyrics as I did into this one just because I happen to have been recently into reading into the troubles and, uh, you know, the really messed up stuff that was happening there. The only other note I have on this is that the first 15 seconds of this could be a Primus song. Like this could just be the beginning of a oh, Primus. Oh, I totally right? got I got some Primus in some other songs as well, just because it's so spastic and yeah. bass forward, and and even the guy's voice. You know, it's not nearly as bad as Les Claypool. <laughs> well, <laughs> actually, maybe I don't know. Maybe it's the other way around. Uh, but yes, I totally got some Primus hits there. No, Les Claypool's voice is the American voice version of this guy's voice, right? Like, which, by the way, where's that? Where's that like weird, oh, almost southern twang of Les Claypool comes from? <laughs> the fucking Bay Area. He grew up. Like, <laughs> he grew up in he, Northern California. Yeah, he took he, the, the, yeah, the Creedence path to success. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, and as we've already stated, extremely unnecessary melodica on the song. I don't know why they chose to do that. It, it was not additive at all. Maybe John King's just like, I need another credit. I need a credit playing an instrument on this album, so I'll get the melodica <laughs> going on. Uh, all right, we're going to move on to the next song that we are going to dissect on our focus list here. It is the song Damaged Goods. Get your gun. 
lyrics aren't working for me at all but i thought that musically this was pretty good this is kind of art rock song template you know version one off mic backing vocals aggressive non-rhyming but it's got a pop underpinning that i hear that makes it kind of single worthy it's a little bit of a head bobber and i did like the bass on this one guitar tone still terrible just to be clear and guitar work, I think, also terrible. But the bass line, good. Yeah, I thought that they, to the to the bobbing your head thing, totally, that this one got me. I kind of like the groove. I like his, his guitar style. Why not jump into it? I feel like the idea is there. The execution is just not. If you were to give this style to a much better guitar player, it would just come off so well. And I'm sure this has been done elsewhere, and I can't think of any off the top of my head, but that very staccato, all-downstroke, and you can tell he is just wailing on the strings, right? Like, he is hitting them hard. I think one of the later songs, like, you can actually hear the guitar is out of tune by the end of the song because he is just hitting the strings yeah. so hard. So I kind of I dug that, that style in there. But I also appreciated, back into the kind of annoyance aspect of it, what they managed to do with two chords... I think the song is entirely two chords, and they managed to figure out exactly where to switch it up in order to keep keep it from becoming that hyper-annoying thing. Like, it's still two chords, but they changed it up around 145, if we could drop that in. On this song, Damaged Goods, they just drop out. They right? drop out from 114 to 215. It's a minute of a three minute song that they just drop out to just drums and vocals. And that's it. <laughs> because they knew that those two chords are getting old. So they had to <laughs> yeah. they had to pull them out for a bit and then drop them back in. Yeah. I think, it's like, I think again. Yeah, the, the, but the dropouts, given what they're trying to do and be a little bit different and they only have three instruments to work with, I think they use them fairly artistically absolutely use them artistically and i i my note on this is that the dropout at 114 is great they keep it going long enough that i'm like this is not a i'll, I'll give a plug to the the pat finnerty guy that i was talking about earlier before we started this call he has that what makes this song stink channel and he does uh he did recently machine gun kelly's emo girl which is like and he's like listening to the song for the first time. He's like, I bet you at some point they're going to go into like the halftime breakdown. Like literally as he's saying it, they're going into the halftime <laughs> breakdown. It's like a halftime breakdown. And they, but they just do it for like two bars and then they go back into the rest of the song. You're like, that just seems tacked on. But when you commit 
to a third of the song is just going to be drums and vocals and that's it. It it gets it crosses that line of not tacked on and very intentional and and cool. It like it 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 caught my attention and then the kick back in is good. And my note here is that like at 252 in this song like a second voice comes in and you get this glimpse of like what they could be because it's pretty melodically pleasing. It's actually like kind of good harmony and like the there's like a little bit of a soundscape going on and like I just wanted more of that. And yeah. the withholding of it made me appreciate it when it came, but I can only stand being withheld so much. But that and that is that plays to my central complaint, I think, about the record, which is you got you got those glimpses of something really cool. You have a lot of really cool ideas, the raw materials of a lot of really great ideas on the table that I think a lot of subsequent bands took in a lot of very interesting directions that we maybe would all even agree we like. But I think this band is a little too up in their head about trying to be different and challenging for their own good, you know, and they get in there, they stumble for that reason. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think that they would think that being called accessible would be the the biggest insult you could give to their sound. Oh, everybody likes your song. Everybody's not supposed to like my song, okay? <laughs> right. Exactly. Let's go on. We're, we're, we're rolling right through this album. Let's, Hell yeah. Let's roll on to Return the Gift, the next song on our focus list. <laughs> got me they did that thing so long that when it finally came in and it was like the offbeat i was like oh you bastards you did it you got me you tricked me and i was like all right cool bobbed my head a little bit so what well done on their part to do it long enough that i wasn't expecting that we went on for a bit but but the i think i feel like the reward at the end of that extended intro was worth it you're referring to the guitar in the intro being off kind of off the beat from yeah, when it kicks right. In, right. Yeah, just to clarify. Yep, yes, yeah, yeah. But like right before it kicks in, he then plays the one note that you want him that like is on the beat, and then the drums to lead kick you in. into yeah, it. It leads. Yeah. In. It's it's well done. It's it's tastefully done on that. I don't. By the way, just again, I'm I'm going to say that I don't think that Andy Gill is a good guitarist. Mm. I think that a lot of what he does here is just effing garbage, and uh, it is the sound of. Alan's talked about it on a previous podcast, like when you get your first microphone, you're just like, Boo, <laughs> like, like I can record myself and listen back to it. It's, it sounds a lot like that. Tom, this reminded me, you, you regaled me with a story probably 20 years ago of a band that you were in in college where you were playing bass 
and the guitar player was just terrible. Mm. And on one of the songs that he had written, he forgot the guitar part and just started like hammering open strings yeah. instead of just not playing. <laughs> the like, Eliza letters. That was, yeah. It's like, first of all, all of your songs are in E major. Every single song you write is in E major. So just probably pick an E major to play. That would, that would have worked. But yes, the one thing that was absolutely never right, all open strings. That's what he would do. So, so you picked the guaranteed wrong thing at the moment yes. and just hammered it. I feel like this guy doesn't know what to hit. Like He knows in his head what he wants, and he just doesn't know how to get there. Right. So he's got... He, a lot of the rhythm is off, but like I kind of can hear what he's going for. But to your point, it's just bad. It just, again, a better guitar player could have executed this strategy so much better and made it something much cooler. I wrote, this is my favorite song, question mark. Like, I'm not 100% <laughs> sure, but I I liked some of the lyrics kind of just made me laugh. I didn't look too much deeper into them. Go to Scotland, no obligation. I like that rhyme for some reason. And then the line about we'll send you an inside shower. I even Googled this one. I have no idea what an inside shower is. What does is. that mean? Okay. All right. We don't know what that means. But, you know, to back to the, the guitar tone for a second, because there's this kind of anti-solo in quotes that starts around 148. And we were just talking about this guy's approach. He takes the confidence of a sort of an Eddie Van Halen and matches it with the skill <laughs> You know, of a of a punk rocker circa 1979, totally. Who only understands power chords and downstrokes. Uh, so yeah, I agree that that it would be handled better by someone else. But I think they're purposely. I I, I interpret it maybe as they are purposely trying to deconstruct that punk downstroke sixteenth note strum pattern. That's you know that's so common in, in bands like the Ramones or the Sex Pistols or things like that, and just do anything but that. You know, but right. but the truth is he doesn't really understand where the notes are on the guitar, and he I don't think he understands how to adjust the knobs on his guitar or his amp because they're all just set to maximum treble. All all yes right, just stab the whole time. Yeah, exactly. I I my note on that is it, it sounds like he's having input jack problems. That's what the guitar <laughs> solo sounds like. It's never great. <laughs> yeah. But I think it's actually two guitars. I think that that's two separate guitars uh, tracks overdub. being like played together. Because there is a little bit of overdubbing in this. Like, uh, yeah, there's like an overdub guitar over the chorus as well. And my central complaint of this song, one of my two central complaints of this song, they're both central. The way that the guitar follows the melody over the verse, it just really doesn't work. And part of the reason it really doesn't work is because you only have three instruments and the bass and the drums are pretty much in lockstep. And then you have the guitar and the melody that is being sung pretty much in lockstep. And you have reduced your variables to two as opposed to like <laughs> you could at least have four variables if you had a melody and a guitar part that played off that melody and the bass and the drums kind of it like I like when the bass and the drums are lockstep a lot of the time, but it didn't. Uh, it, you mean it, that sweet counter melody? Blink, 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 blink. 
Well, he like over the verse, he's just straight up playing the melody that is being sung with big air quotes around sung. <laughs> and again, like you have to understand these limitations of a trio to be able to maximize them. And it seems like they, they were definitely not trying to maximize being a trio again. Maybe it was on purpose. I don't know, but you throw it to a band like Nirvana, another trio that had a big sound. And these guys just don't have a big sound. And maybe they weren't going for a big sound, but I like big sound. The guy's guitar sounds a lot better live on Spotify. There's like seven albums or something of them live in, I guess, 1979, 78 or something like that. And live, I mean, I won't say they sound great, but his guitar at least live in a big room sounds like a big guitar and actually carries some meat to it you know what happens when you play live in a big room you have a guitar tech who's like <laughs> uh, hey yes let me explain to you how these things work here these and, are called knobs <laughs> an engineer moving the knobs yeah. dialing it up and down. yeah that's a good yeah. point good point well because this was very diy recording i think that they produced this themselves and so there wasn't a you know there wasn't a hit maker in the room who's just like all right let me tell you how it's done kids which again (laughs) probably very purposeful okay so at one minute and 30 seconds into a three minute and six second song they say please send me evenings and weekends and then they do the worst guitar solo that's ever been put on tape. <laughs> and then they say, please send me evenings and weekends for like a minute straight for the end of the song. I like I liked that line. That line was kind of cool. That line is kind of clever. And then it, maybe it, it just didn't get back around to me by the end of it. Where I was just like, God, I'm just so tired of you saying this line. It's not as clever as you think it is. So the song's a minute and a half is what you're telling us. <laughs> Basically. No, but honestly, at the end... There's a nice kind of crescendo with the bass doing that like root third fifth. Please send me evenings and weekends. Please send me evenings and weekends. Like that, the bass works really nice. As and I can say that on almost every song in this album, the bass works really nice. There's a good crescendo, and it feels like it builds to something. A lot of these songs don't like feel like they build that much to me. This one had a build. I think the rhythm section is good in this band. I I, I came away from this record feeling like the drums and bass were good, and the other two components were having a hard time sticking in and finding their finding their best life. You know what I will say about the drummer, um, and I appreciate this about drummers because it was the kind of drummer that I was. You can tell that he's not a good drummer, and I don't mean that he doesn't put good drum beats on the track. I mean that he doesn't have the lazy standard rock beat one to go back to that he can just knock out of the park in his sleep. He has to think about the parts that he puts together, and it made him create some cool parts. Right. Well, and I know that's funny you mentioned that, Tom, because we always describe that to you not being, to not having your bag of tricks when you were a drummer. And we, I think out of that, we agree that we got some really interesting drum beats. I totally agree to that. But I, now, these many years on, low these many years on, I think that's just a reflection of the drummer being actively involved in the creative process and not totally checked out. Yeah, fair point. There's been a lot of bands that we've been in with the drummer completely checked out, who is like, I actively hate the songs that we play, but whatever. I just want to be in a band because it's fun, and I already bought this damn drum set, so why not? Right. All right, let's move on 
to Guns Before Butter. of refrigerator magnet songwriting i really like the title here and this is that's one of the last nice things i'll say but you know just today i was i was googling around and realized that this term this is a real economic term i didn't know that never heard that before but the term guns really guns are buttered the term refers to the relationship between a nation's investment in defense and civilian goods the guns or butter model is used generally as a simplification of national spending as part of GDP. So that actually made me like it less because I thought it was a fun little f- turn of phrase. And now that I know that it's this thing they got from a John Maynard Kynes book or something, you know, I'm a little less impressed by it. So Now they're upset with corporate greed as well. Just bring it on, pile it on. Yeah, it's like, what trope have we not trotted <laughs> out here about punk dissatisfaction? Okay. Yeah, this the, when they when they lapse into this all this talk of blood and iron, I and I, this is kind of the way I feel about the whole record. But I wrote down for this track in particular that I simultaneously get that this is the quote unquote real deal of punk music, but it is also indistinguishable from a parody that Fred Armisen and Bill Hader would do on Documentary Now. <laughs> so there was this is the song that I wrote that reminded me there Dave Grohl was the guest, I think, on an SNL episode. and Or maybe it was Ashton Kutcher, but Ashton Kutcher... <laughs> One of those two Fred, guys. <laughs> Fred Armisen and uh, Dave Grohl are in a skit, and they're supposed to be... like They had a punk band that was reuniting for his daughter's wedding. And so, of course, they get up on the ba- on like the wedding band's equipment and plays this ridiculous song, and they're knocking over tables and screaming about the government and and you know the CIA. And this tune reminded me of that. So, if you're bored, go go uh, Google that. It's pretty freaking hilarious. So, the lyrics in this are bad. I'm just gonna read some of the lyrics. All this talk of blood and iron is the cause of all my shaking. The fatherland's no place to die for. It makes me want to run out shaking. I hear some talk of guns and butter. That's something we can do without. If men are only blood and iron, oh, doctor, doctor, what's in my shirt? Okay. The word shirt does not rhyme with the end of any line in that song, except for the other time they say shirt. Dude, it's punk. What are you talking about? Apparently so. But, okay, you rhymed shaking with shaking? And then you're going to rhyme iron with shirt? <laughs> Not even close. Not even close. Yeah, I don't know about that. So it, that's the problem with overly serious lyrics, though, is that when they miss, they really miss. Like, yeah. it, it's laughably terrible when overly serious lyrics miss. Like, bullshit, stupid lyrics. 
they can miss all the time. You don't really care. But you're trying to get me to invest in the message, and then your message is, oh, doctor, doctor, what's in my shirt? I don't get that at all. <laughs> what grinds my gears is when you're overly serious and you miss, and then we say, hey, that doesn't make any sense. That didn't rhyme or even come close. That's not that clever. Then I think the response is like, no, no, you don't get it, man. Yeah, that's the point. That's the point, man. The uh, I want to call out particularly of all the terrible terribly unsonorous guitar work on this record the very end of this track has these like guitar crinkles where he's just trying to upset your ears just in the last like 10 <laughs> seconds like dude we got it you're unpleasant my one of my note on notes on this is it sounds like there are two guitars and they're playing parts that are completely ignorant of not only what the other guitar parts are, but also what the bass and drums are doing. It's like they just were like, okay, this song is like three minutes and 32 seconds long. So just play for three minutes and 32 seconds, and then we'll play. And then just, you know what? That was a good take. How about you do something completely different again? Nothing else, just you. And then we'll just take those two, and we'll put them over the rest of the song, and we'll just yeah, we'll see if it works. See if it works. At the beginning of the song, they, I think they're trying to harmonize at the beginning of the song. <laughs> but I don't know if harmony works if one guy is just talking, right? Like, the one guy's just talking and the other guy's singing, and it just doesn't make a harmony. How come vocalist number two isn't allowed to be close to the mic also? That's every time he sings. Dude, it's punk. They can only afford one away. mic. <laughs> right. Is it the same? Is it the, is it the lead vocalist doing all the vocals or no. is it like the bass player? Okay. So, in fact, on various songs, uh, Andy Gill is the lead vocalist. He's the lead vocalist on the second song on the album, Nature's Not In It. And he's the lead vocalist on that uh, 11th song, 545. So what is the other guy doing during those songs? Oh, I'm sure uh, just amazing backups. Um, <laughs> he's Some listed as backups. He's listed as co-lead vocals on. Oh, come on. Yeah. What is that? So there's lead vocals. There's co-lead vocals. That sounds like dumbest thing. But I will say this, like, uh, and Dave Allen, the bass player, also is listed as a vocalist on various songs. He, actually, on Return the Gift, he was he was one of the the backup vocalists on that. So there's a there's a lot of guys getting on the mic. The drummer, rightfully, Hugo Burnham stayed off the mic. Good for him. Nice. <laughs> he's got to concentrate. Yeah. He can't sing when he's focusing on those 16th notes. You kidding me? Well, you know, honestly, my, my note on this is that this drum beat belongs in a much better song. I, I like the drum beat on this song. I, it just, I think it belongs in a better song. Yeah, I can hear that. Oh, God, the guitar work. Ugh. It's pretty, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's not great. Not great. We're still, we're still not to, I think, what might be my favorite tidbit of, of my research on this. Well, it'll, it'll come. It'll come soon. Um, we're going to go into the next song. I found that essence rare.
like my mind goes, oh, there's jangly guitar in the intro instead of sharp rhythmic stabs of guitar. Don't don't tease me, Gang of Four. Like it's, that's very briefly exciting <laughs> as a change of pace. But again, tonally, it sounds like a banjo made from a soup can. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, the point, Rob. It's the point, okay? What do you like, good sounding guitar? <laughs> I actually thought this tune kind of rocked. I, I, uh, I, like I dug song. this one. Favorite yeah. song on the album. I have to say, because it sounds more produced than the rest it's of got, the album. Yeah, it's, it's got a straight ahead beat to it. Yeah, just it, and it, it. This is the one that actually I thought was kind of poppy, and that it, you know, it went to the four, and then it came back to the one, then it went to the five, and then came back to the one. And you're like, oh my god, I can kind of follow this. Totally, and it's not constant dissonant guitar. It's yeah. not that herky jerkiness that's on the rest of the album. Like this could have just been a Clash song, basically, if the lyrics were, if the vocals weren't as terrible. Like it could have been a Clash right. song. I wrote, yeah, I wrote best chorus, yeah, despite my complaints. I wrote best chorus on the album. I hear a lot of other music in this one that came a lot later. We, you know, we've already mentioned a few bands like Queens of the Stone Age, but I think you got to draw that lineage also to bands like The Strokes or Franz Ferdinand, kind of that early 2000s revival, maybe even through to a band like LCD Sound System, who I've never really particularly loved, but I think they take a lot of cues from a band. So, yeah, this one's kind of a banger. I get it. Yeah. And... We've talked before about production choices on an album. This is the one song that actually seemed like it had a an intentional production choice of switching from obviously like a room mic. Maybe that was like the mic on the drums picking up that guitar at the beginning that then transitions into the close mic sound. That's a production choice. And this is this album is relatively bereft of production choices. Sure. Yeah. So that stuck out to me as like, oh, this there's something going on here. Let's, let's talk about the production choice for just a second, because I think that is a common theme, especially in this era of music, where people get to the studio for the first time, and they're not even thinking about using, quote-unquote, using the studio as an instrument. They're just thinking, let's get the band's live sound put to tape. You know, and I think that sometimes that attitude matures over time. But I feel like it's I don't know I'm I'm tempted to hold that against them but I think if you're this is the first record presumably this is the first time any of these guys have been in a recording studio or in a recording setting I, I understand why production isn't really is kind of an afterthought at least originally yeah, it's a learned skill definitely I would say that every time that I went into the studio for the first probably five or six times it was more just that get that live band feel not like what tricks can we pull out what how can we differentiate this from just us playing in a room and you listening to it yeah and and even though we've been complaining about the tones this does sound kind of like a live band i get why this band would be exciting to watch you know there's a lot of energy youthful energy and intensity on the tape here and that is not always the easiest thing we just toss that off like you walk into the studio when you're a young man and say i want to get that live band energy like that's easy to do that's not always that easy actually but so i think this has some of that to its credit Sure, sure. Now, this song is, again, it's my favorite song on the album. But my one note is that if the rest of the album sounded like this song, we would not be talking about this album. Yeah, I agree. I think that it would be a little uh, middle of the road. Point. And it wouldn't yeah. have And it wouldn't have broken new ground. It wouldn't have done anything notable if they all sounded like, if all songs sounded like this. But I like, this is definitely the best song on the album, which, you know, it means that I probably don't like most of the other stuff that they were going for, but I appreciate that they were going for some stuff. Well, that's interesting you say that because I was thinking about the guitar player again, and if he if he had dialed back 
his noise aspect and just focused on like what I'll call like his sound, which is that super harsh, stabby, down, uh, downstroke chop. Like, could he have defined a sound of guitar? You know, like what is it that makes, you know, Andy Summers is not a virtuoso. I mean, he's a great guitar player, but he's got a sound, right? He's defined what he does. I feel like this guy was so close to like, having a sound if he had just like pumped Mm. the brakes on just the crazy bad notes that he could have had something that that he didn't invent but that he kind of ran with i'd say you know what i'll I'll give him and the band overall a compliment here to play against my earlier couple of poor comparisons against talking heads one of my most beloved bands which is i did go back and listen to talking heads 77 I think 77, you know, their Talking Heads' first album came out two years before this, and maybe their second album came out before this. But in a way, and they have some of these ideas on the tape, and they were definitely contemporaries, and they were playing at some of the same clubs and things like that. However, I think where later Talking Heads went, say Remain in Light era Talking Heads, you got all this polyrhythmic stuff, you got this much, Talking Heads compiled this much bigger band with all these percussionists and different polyrhythms going on. And that, I think, helped define a sound really, really clearly. I think you could argue that this record is a precursor of that kind of stuff. Like, they're, they're dabbling in the waters of polyrhythms. They just have so few instruments <laughs> that they're, like, implied. You know, here's, here's what I would say about that. I, I think that the way that they are dabbling in polyrhythms is, like, the most punk rock way to do it, which is, like... I'm not even going to pay attention or care to what you're doing. I'm just going to do my own thing. And (laughs) the way that Talking Heads did it is they really gelled in a way that turned into this rich sound of complementary rhythms. And these are non-complementary rhythms that are being played against each other a lot of the times. Not not on the rhythm section side. Again, the rhythm section is tight as hell. I like them. They're very good. But you throw that guitar in there, and he's almost actively trying to throw you off of what the bass and drums are doing a lot of the time. Yeah. yeah and to bring it back to guitar, you have Adrian Ballou of King of formerly of King Crimson on records like remain in light and in the live band of talking heads in that era that we were just talking about. And he's making a lot of sort of atonal noise with that guitar. And yet he's some, because he's such a great guitar player, it really sounds like a distinct and purposeful style. Sure. Because well, it is. It is. Yeah, it's well, it's it is. like yeah, well thought out and very well crafted. So go listen to that one if you want to know what the hell we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's all about they build soundscapes. These guys don't really build soundscapes. It's you know, it's like they have no interest in building a soundscape. They like because a soundscape implies that the instruments together are more than the sum of their parts. They create this new thing, and they, they don't seem like they have any interest in doing that whatsoever. Just on a lyrical note. I think that they're talking about the bikini atoll nuclear tests. Ah, I was wondering about, yeah, I I didn't quite get that. The worst thing in 1954 was the bikini, which I'm pretty sure was like when the bikini atoll tests were happening. And then he talks about like a woman in a bikini and she's dressed for the H-bomb. And it's like, I get that, but those two things aren't actually really related at all. Like women wearing bikinis and, you know, it's clever, (laughs) I guess, but yeah. Okay, I have a concept album pitch for you, Tom. How about we do... It's like a parody of ultra-political 
songwriting, but we just mm. take all these mi- very minor political events from history that we can then point to in a screed that comes with the liner notes. Oh, okay. Like these yeah. were the seminal events of the 20th century. Sure. How dare you? Absolutely. I, I could dig on that. We could take some uh, some very minor political happenings, like uh, Newt Gingrich's contract with America, which never actually even happened, and we could talk about it. Like, although, I, you know. Stabbed in yeah. the back by that? Yeah. Uh, at home, he's a tourist. It's the last song that we're going to cover on this focus list here. So let's let's round it on home. seriousness what the fuck is the guitar doing here <laughs> oh my god my 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 note on this is another solid bass line that the guitar just comes in and shits all over however i'm going to offer a counterpoint q magazine listed this song as the 52nd best guitar track of all time no what? it sounds like he's strangling <laughs> that thing <laughs> That was my favorite thing that I came up with from the research. The 52nd best guitar track of all time. Uh, If you put a capo on the guitar and gave it to any one of our children and just had them sit in a garage and wail on it, you could come up with something comparable to this if you cut it right. By the way, this was the tune that they thought that they should do on top of the pops. Right. So there was a there was a story. Yeah. So Top of the Pops was a British at the time, a variety show that that aired it uh, in the evenings. Our friends Sparks were on it that kind of sent them on a, a mini trajectory, you know, uh, straight to the straight to the sky there. But they were invited onto Top of the Pops. And there's a line in this song. Uh, I think it's the rubbers you hide in your left pocket. The producers said, can you make it the rubbish you hide in your left pocket? And the uh, gang of four said, no, uh, we're we're true artists. And they lost the gig because of one word. (laughs) Hey, man, our lyrics are our children. No way. Yes. (laughs) Simpsons and Flea and, and now Flea. this. Oh, oh it's a beautiful come through the looking glass here, people. <laughs> no, you know what? So, I did I did read I read that, but then I read a slight correction to that story. Oh, which is please. yeah, that Andy Gill later said in an interview that they were like three hours from showtime and on that particular show they didn't play live anyway. They were just gonna be miming to their to their record. And sure. at the kind of the last second, the people said, Hey, you have to go change you have to change that word, same word, rubbers, to some other word that wasn't rubbish, process or something. And he said they said okay, and they went in and did some recording. 
and then they weren't satisfied with the recording that they had done. They thought ah, it sounded too fake. That the right. producers of the show, that is, according to the guitar player Andy Gill. And they came back to them and said, no, no, you need to redo it. Let's make it rubbish. And they were like, you know what? Forget this. We're, we're out of here. <laughs> it's not worth it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. I, I stand corrected. We just prevented a whole lot of ire from, some, uh, from our mailbag <laughs> next week. So thank you, Rob. So I don't like the cadence of the vocals on the verse at all on this song it really it really gets to me it's so lockstep with the rhythm of the bass there like there's not much else going on and so you kind of need elements to play off each other and not lock in and if you're gonna lock in you need to commit and just do that forever it's got to be the echoes thing where you're just like i'm just gonna go do 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 for like eight minutes and you're like oh yeah that's that's locking in that really he's owning it yeah yeah but it's it's almost like they don't own it you kind of can't even do that on a three minute song yeah but yeah i didn't i didn't like it and it really annoyed me and this seems so quintessentially british to me where they're sort of creating this posh upper class character that they're talking about and also saying about how like he lives his great life but he's actually secretly miserable it didn't speak to me and again just really over the top british for me i i thought they were some of the worst lyrics and perhaps and there were a lot of bad lyrics on this record but perhaps what i'm responding to is the fall from grace from you're pitching me this song at home He's a tourist, or what is it called? Yeah, at home he's a tourist. Mm-hmm. That sounds like a pretty good theme for like a short story, or you know, I'm like, oh yeah, that's, you that could sounds, do a lot deep. with that. Yeah, right, I get right. It. I get what you're talking about. That could be a stranger be... in his own home, all that stuff, right? Exactly. And then the payoff is two steps forward, six steps back, repeated. Six steps for... back. Six steps back. <laughs> Right, repeated for a third of the song again. You know, like there's nothing, nothing lyrically that pays pays that line off, or that theme. Definitely not. Definitely not. There is one cool thing, and again, in liking it, it also annoyed me. In that, uh, right at two fifty, there they, there's the line which says like small step for him, and then the guy repeats like giant leap for me. But when he says small step for him, they kind of speed the tape up on the small step for him echo and goes. Yes, yes. Oh, cool. Studio magic. Production technique. studio. Yes. Why didn't you do more of that? Like, why is that the one time that it showed up kind of low in the mix? And I couldn't really. I had to listen to it a couple of times before I caught it. Ah. You're showing me you had the capability to make an album that was more complex and pleasant, and you chose not to, and that was a choice that you, I'm sure, made intentionally, but it's like you're choosing to not do the things that I like about music. I'm pretty curious as to how this is going to go. So, as you all know, dear listeners, this is the point in the podcast where we tell you definitively... Whether or not the Gang of Four album Entertainment belongs on the list of 1,001 albums you must hear before you die, I am going to throw it first to Adam. So I know I came in pretty hot on this album. Truthfully, I know so little about punk and post-punk that this was a great introduction to that genre. It's, it's being lauded as something that did spawn a bit 
of that movement. And while it by no means deserves its place as eighth best guitar solo or 500th best whatever, I do think that this could squeak into to 1001 that you need to hear. So I'm actually going to say, yes, you should listen to this. Interesting. All right. Rob, let's get your take on it. Yeah. So I also came in hot. I can't say I really want to listen to this again, but I'm definitely glad I did listen to it. I feel like it added to my understanding of the musical canon. And ultimately, I'm going to go yes as well. Reason being, you know, not everything's for me. This reminds me of being younger. I think if this record had gotten to me when I was younger or of a certain age or of a certain mindset, I think I would have appreciated it more. That's just how music works sometimes. That's fine. And to me, the component parts are all pretty interesting and pr- relatively revolutionary. They're not, they're not totally unique, as we, as we pointed out, or original in the musical canon, but the component parts are interesting and influential enough. I can see lines to so many other bands in the 80s, 90s, and on into the 2000s that I think this is worth your time to listen to. God damn. I am shocked. Curveballs. My my overall review is that this is an album that is of a time. It is not of my time. And I was not a music I wasn't alive at the time. I was not a music fan at the time. I don't listen to a lot of music from this time that's not basically like talking heads. I don't even like the clash. But it was a heady, turbulent time in music where things were trying to find a new direction. And yeah, even though I don't like the, the new direction that they helped to carve, I can't say that they didn't help to carve a new direction in music. And so, God damn it, these guys aren't going to go three out of three. And I would not have guessed that <laughs> Whoa! at all. Jesus Full Christ. Unabashed recommendation. Wow. It will, like, <laughs> honestly, like when I first listened to this album, I was like, I'm going to have so much fun just tearing this Destroy piece of shit yes. apart. <laughs> and I was like, oh man, I got to come up with jokes that Alan, uh, that Adam and rob we're not going to come up with because i know that this is just going to be a shit fest and we're just going to be and yeah it kind of it grew on me and apparently that was the the case with everyone so if you're going to listen to this album apparently listen to it like 10 times <laughs> that's the sweet spot yeah. the sweet spot is like 10. the sweet spot i'm going to echo what rob said i'm probably not going to listen to this again glad i have listened to it it added to my music education so there you have it dear listeners if you haven't listened to Gang of Fours Entertainment yet, you should listen to that as soon as possible. And, and just just to be fully clear, right? We what we were really what really still rankles me is the accolades, the individual oh, accolades that we sure. mentioned that we rattled off that were given to it about great guitar work and things like that. That still is ridiculous. Oh, the guitar sucks. The guitar on this album is not good. All right, I don't like the guitar on this album. The bass and the drums are very good. The lyrics are occasionally really good. The v- lyric delivery is usually pretty bad. Yeah, but I but I see how some of it could give you ideas. It's like hearing a garbage truck outside your window and going, oh, that reminds me of a beat that I could write. It doesn't mean the thing itself sounds good. <laughs> it's great, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're going to go out and buy that garbage truck's new EP? Yeah, okay, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> There's your concept album. All right. So all that is left now... Dear listeners, we are going to get our homework assignment for next week, figure out what we are going to be listening to. I have the Albinator 5000 here. 
Apparently, it was set to herky-jerky motion last week, so I'm going to do something to like <laughs> change the gears around to see if I can get some smoothness going on, maybe. <laughs> Uh, after, I guess after the, uh, the brown sugar, uh, settings, it was too, it was all smoothed out. I had to get a little bit of grit in there. So without any further ado, we will be listening to, (laughs) all right, my beautiful dark twisted fantasy by Kanye West. Which, I was wondering who you were going to say. I didn't know the album. <laughs> yeah, I, it sounds I like it's like my the... chemical romance or something. I was about like to say that. it right, yeah. like <laughs> totally very emo. Yeah, that's some whiny bullshit, Kanye. I've never listened to a moment of this album. I only am familiar with one Kanye song. Uh, I guess two Kanye songs. That song Gold Digger was everywhere. But I know that song Gone, which is pretty good, but the best verses on it are not Kanye's. That's going to be interesting. Uh, Believe yeah, it or not, I I listened to his uh, the, was it the college dropout? Yeah, I was going like to say the first, first the first record is yeah, good. Yeah, like, that, I, that I, was circulating like that amongst friends and yeah in college that I I definitely listened to that a couple times. But and that not, was solid. I did not follow him from there on his various journeys, so I've never heard a note right. of this one. I was going to say I think my problem with Kanye is that I came to Kanye after Kanye was Kanye. And I was like, he's a crazy uh, megalomaniac deal. fucking asshole. And I don't want to in any way support him. Yeah. We've never covered any of those people on the podcast before. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is true. But uh, as you've said many times before, my, uh, my hard and fast rule of this, the singer seems like a dick. I have a hard time liking it. This yeah. might be insurmountable. <laughs> oh Yes. But I am a hip-hop fan. I think this is like a little later era hip-hop than I was really into. But we'll see. I honestly have no idea when this album even came out. So should be very interesting. Everyone strap in. Get ready to listen to a bunch of upper-middle-class 40-year-old white men talk about Kanye. <laughs> Those are the Kanye stands, though. Let's be honest. That, yeah, right. that's, that's actually a good point. <laughs> Please activate, guys. Yeah, Tell us in advance what you think. <laughs> All right. Awesome. So, if you liked what you're hearing and you want to throw us a little bit of fan mail, I neglected to mention this at the top of the podcast. God damn it. We had the fan mail bag and we didn't talk about how you could send us fan mail. 1001 album complaints at gmail.com. 1001 album complaints at gmail.com. You can also find us on various podcast portals. We're on audible right now we have two reviews on audible and one of them is a boomer who's pissed off that we're a comedy podcast which is possibly my favorite review of all time (laughs) write us a review it would be great it helps get us some visibility but if you really just want to tell a friend that hey i think this podcast is cool i think these guys know what they're talking about or i think these guys are so hilariously uninformed that i find it endearing it's charming (laughs) whatever we'll take that too Yeah. yeah We just want to get the word out. We're having a ton of fun doing this. We're not trying to make money. You notice we're not hitting you with a Patreon or any bullshit like that. There's no ads. We do this for our own amusement. And so if you're amused, tell other people. Hopefully they can be amused too. Uh, 1001 album complaints at gmail.com for any fan mail. And find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Audible, a bunch of places. And tell people that you like us. So get ready to discuss... Kanye West next week and until then I have been Tom I'm Adam and I'm Rob Aboosh
this podcast gives me migraines.